Right now, around the world, all eyes are riveted on the humanitarian crisis that is unfolding in Ukraine and neighboring countries, as an estimated 3 million or more refugees have poured across the border. But there's another potential humanitarian crisis on the horizon. Ukraine and Russia between them are two of the world's largest wheat producers. And so the dramatic decline of wheat exports from these two countries could have staggering impacts on food security around the world. To discuss this issue, we have an expert on food security who is also a graduate of Regent University who can give us more of the details on this hidden but potentially huge humanitarian impact of Putin's war. I'm Dr. Nolte, and for Blind Politics, this is Eye on Ukraine. Welcome once again, podcast listeners, to another episode in our ongoing coverage of the war in Ukraine, Eye on Ukraine, through Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Five-star ratings help raise the visibility, so please do that. You can also find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on Facebook and Instagram through the feeds of the Robertson School of Government. I'm very pleased to have with us today, although I wish it was on a, a more cheerful subject, uh, Richard Parker. Richard is a graduate of Regent University's Robertson School of Government. He currently serves as the Vice President for External Affairs at Food for the Hungry and previously served as the Assistant, I'm going to see if I can get this title correct, Richard, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, assistant Director of Legislative and Public Affairs. Is that right? Assistant Administrator for Legislative and Public Affairs. That's right. I always forget. Uh, the uh, At USAID, I always forget USAID doesn't have directors, they have administrators. <laughs> so Assistant Administrator for Public Affairs and Legislative Affairs at USAID, meaning that he was responsible for global branding as well as outreach to the Hill. Uh, Richard has worked on humanitarian issues globally, as well as in several administrations, including a stint at HHS during the Bush administration, uh, where he's involved with the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief or PEPFAR. Uh, so this is someone who knows his way around the humanitarian space very well, and is currently engaged directly on food security issues. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. AJ, thank you so much for including me. It's a pleasure to be with you and to be home at Regent once again. Absolutely, and we are, we are glad to have you. And particularly as we're launching our new international development degree here at Regent, it's great to highlight some of our alumni that are already working in that field. So as we're talking about and, and trying to get our hands around the scope of this potential disaster, this, this crisis, as I would describe it, in global food security, I wonder if you could kind of give us a picture of where things were before the conflict. I know that there's been some discussion of, of COVID and global you know, su supply chain issues affecting food security in, in large portions of the world. Can you kind of give me a, a sense of where you guys were and, and the concerns you had and the issues you were looking at before the war in Ukraine started? It's a great question, AJ. So thank you. Uh, even before the conflict and the pandemic, as you mentioned, we were already seeing signs of hunger and looming famine across the world. 
Global wheat prices have been on the rise since the end of 2020, really due to a lack of supply with poor harvests and increased demand. Uh, just in some specific areas that you can see around the world, there's been a drought in Central America for some time, which is one of the main causes for a lot of the migration that we've been seeing on the U.S. southern border, particularly looking back to 2017 and 2018. There's drought and growing stability really across the Sahel region, which is that portion that stretches across all of North Africa. Uh, and in particular in the Horn of Africa, there in East Africa, where you have Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya, uh, you've seen increasing levels of famine. Southern Africa, especially Zimbabwe, has been trending towards food insecurity for quite some time. Zimbabwe, as we talk about Ukraine being the breadbasket of, of Europe and part of the world, Zimbabwe used to be the, the the breadbasket of Africa. And so uh, you're seeing a lot of downward trends in food security really in that portion of Africa as well. Some climate related, some disaster related, and then also with poor governance. And then Yemen has been an issue for hunger for quite some time now, given the civil war that they've been having. And you've unfortunately been seeing hunger being used as a weapon in that war as well. Uh, mm -hmm. So access is a really huge issue there in Yemen. So pockets around the world have been experiencing food insecurity for some time, but of course are going to be exacerbated even greater because of the conflict in Ukraine. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give you kind of a, a follow up that's a little bit of a softball across the plate, and and at least I hope so. You know, a lot of Americans will ask, well, it's terrible that these things are happening in other parts of the world, but how does that really affect us domestically? How does that affect our security, our national security, all those things? I think you hinted at one aspect, which is drought in Central America causing increased migration flows and, and associated, you know, controversies and issues with that. But I'm just wondering if you can kind of give us the the bottom line up front. What are the what are the knock on effects of this rising global food insecurity? I think just looking at U.S. foreign assistance in general, you know, many times foreign aid can be played as a political football, uh, and that's something that is really to the detriment of our national security, our economic security, and just as who we are as Americans, as some of the most generous people in the world. You mentioned one of them correctly when you talk about migration coming from Central America. But I think also just look around the world and wherever you see greater instability, that poses a risk for the U.S. If you take a look back to PEPFAR, which you mentioned that I was involved in in the very beginning stages of in the Bush administration, you know, one of the reasons why President Bush saw that this was something that needed to be addressed is you had many countries in Africa that were really facing extinction with the high levels of HIV rates that were in that country. If you think of in the, on the continent, if you think about a small country like Swaziland in Southern Africa, you had upwards of 40% of the 25 to 40 year old population that was HIV positive at that time. So if you're going to have that much instability that's happening in the world, that is going to allow people that do not like the U.S. to be able to go in and take advantage of the situation. And we were just the beginning in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan at that time. So you can imagine why the instability of an entire continent was something that was uh, something that was on the minds of, of the president and the National Security Council at the time. So really going in there and taking uh, providing medication around HIV AIDS and really changing the face of the continent were something that were so was so critical. Uh, you actually have countries that are now more stable in Africa. You actually have growing economies in Africa. We always like to say that eight to eight or nine of, of, out of 10 of the fastest growing economies in the world are actually in Africa. That's something that's good for trade for the U.S. and to be able to purchase American goods. And also it's just the right things to do as Americans. 
and we are the most generous people in the world, and we want to make sure that we are sharing the abundant blessings that we've been provided. So I think foreign aid provides a tremendous amount of benefit back home to the U.S., and that's something that all Americans uh, really need to understand, and I think they are beginning to understand that, particularly when you look at a conflict like Ukraine and you're starting to see more of a global uh, picture about what's happening in the world and where America fits into that. Uh, so if I can summarize briefly a couple of points from that that I think are, are extremely important. One, global instability is bad for rich countries in general and the global hegemon in particular. Two, contra you know what, what Marxist or dependency theorists would argue, rich countries don't benefit from keeping other countries poor and unstable. In fact, they would benefit from those countries being more well-off and, and uh, more stable for, for trade reasons. And then number three, Foreign aid is oftentimes the most effective way of causing those positive results. And foreign assistance is always cheaper than war <laughs> So for on a number of levels. so And most people, if you if you poll the American people and ask them what percent of the, of the federal budget is foreign aid, most people will say, will say close to 25%. Uh, but when you ask them what it should be, Democrats will say 10%, Republicans will say 5%. And it's really 1% of the budget. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of education that needs to be done about the what uh, foreign assistance actually is in the U.S. And you're you're so right about it being much cheaper than war. Uh, Secretary, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates is one of the most eloquent people around in talking about this. And former uh, CENTCOM Commander uh, General Mattis and former Defense Secretary Mattis actually talked about how he was asked in a congressional hearing, like what uh, what are the consequences if we don't fully fund the State Department and U.S. Uh, and USAID? And his comment was very blunt, as the general happened to be, and said, uh, "If you don't fully fund them, then you need to buy me more bullets." <laughs> there you go. I think this is really important as we just uh, as a scene setter as we start talking about both the possible implications of what's happening right now in Russia and Ukraine on food security. Because the sticker shock of, of what could need to be done on foreign policy on the foreign aid side is, is staggering. But on the other side, the sticker shock of not doing it could be worse, particularly if we're talking about conflict in, in some areas that could be affected. Pivoting to that, can you describe a little bit sort of what is the role that Russia and Ukraine play in global food markets? It's a huge role, as I as I mentioned, you know, talking about Zimbabwe being the breadbasket of Africa, but they talk about Ukraine and Russia as being the breadbasket of the world. And you've got the breadbasket of the world that's having a war right now. There's already an estimated 45 million people who are on the verge of starvation. And when you're talking about losing that portion of the food supply, the, uh, the aspects of that are really huge. Russia and Ukraine together export about 30% of the world's wheat. Ukraine and Russia also combined for about 75% of global sunflower exports, which accounts for 10% of all cooking oils. Uh, Ukraine is 17% of global corn exports. Over 50% of the cereals in Middle East and Afri in North Africa are imported from Russia and Ukraine, or the materials that go into that, which is a huge portion of the food supply for those areas. You know, wheat, corn, oils, barley, flour are all extremely important to food security. And if you don't have people that are harvesting that or growing that and the ability to be able to transport that out of those regions, then there's going to be uh, a problem. I mean, even in the EU, uh, when you think about developed countries, uh, Ukraine supplies EU with just under 60% of its corn supply and nearly half of a key component in the grains that you need to feed livestock. So not only are we talking about breads, grains, and wheats and things, but if you can't feed your livestock, that's going to be an issue too. 
And, and that could have even greater knock-on effects as European countries that are also potential food exporters are going to have to transition to, to growing some of that feed for livestock domestically, meaning that that's less that they can export. Yes, and rising prices globally. Mm. Yes. Mm. I want to zero in on a couple of those numbers. You said 30% of global wheat, that's almost a third. Mm-hmm. And you said 50% for between Ukraine and Russia of cereals in the Middle East and North Africa. Mm-hmm. I've looked at, I looked at some of the country breakdowns. And, and for some countries, it's even higher. It's it's upwards of 80 or 90% for Egypt, uh, Lebanon, Turkey. Turkey, I think, was maybe 70 or 80. I don't have the numbers right in front of me. And then, you know, other countries like Libya, Syria, and Somalia that are not in great shape. So what what are the implications that we're essentially looking at? I mean, just if you can quantify it all based on folks that you've talked to, because I'm sure in the, in the food assistance and food security community, people are talking about this. How how bad can you just give the listeners a scope for how how bad are people concerned that this could get? No, very concerned about it. And uh, if you think about looking when Russia annexed quote unquote Crimea uh, back in 2014, wheat prices increased by 25 percent in just two months. Then they stabilized, but there's a much shorter conflict. So if it can do that. Increased by 25% in just a two-month period, you can only imagine what's going to happen now, especially when uh, you're having harvests that are not going to happen in that area. Also, another thing to consider is that the UN World Food Program, who is the largest food program in the world, uh, feeding hungry people, uh, they receive purchase more than half of their wheat from Ukraine farms. Uh, so that is going to be a huge problem when you have the world's largest humanitarian organization doing feeding and not being able to uh, to procure the Fifty uh, percent of the wheat that they're that they're needing. Uh, you're also going to have, you know, some food issues and insecurity that's going to happen in Ukraine itself. So that just adds mm-hmm. on to the list of countries that are going to be a problem. And you mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of different regions. Um, just specifically looking at Lebanon, where, you know, in 2020 there was that massive explosion at the Beirut port that destroyed the country's main grain silos. And authorities have been scrambling to really make up for a wheat shortage there ever since. And you've got Ukraine is providing 60% of its supply, as you mentioned, and you've got greater instability in Lebanon uh, because of food of the food issue um, trying to form a government. So this is going to be a, a further challenge to Lebanon. Uh, you mentioned Egypt, which you know much better than I, but they're the world's largest importer of wheat. Uh, so the mm-hmm. millions of Egyptians rely on heavily government subsidized bread made made from Ukraine grains. Uh, so that's going to continue to be an issue. And then looking uh, really at the, the wheat imports that go into East Africa in particular, Ukraine represents roughly 18% of the imported wheat into East Africa, and Russia provides over 70% of that. Uh, so if you don't have access to that type of food in East Africa where you already have greater food insecurity, then that's going to be something that uh, we're going to have to to look at and to really try to address. Uh, the UN just recently already sounded the alarm that 4 million people are at risk for starvation uh, in Somalia. Uh, you've got the crisis that's happening in Ethiopia right now with the with the Tigray region and the, the discord that's happening there. And you've already got huge amounts of people that are food insecure in that region and refugees and folks fleeing the region. So that's going to continue to exacerbate all in that one microcosm of that area there in the Horn of Africa. So if we think about the knock-on effects that we talked about sort of at the beginning of this, of instability, insecurity, refugee flows, potential mass migrations, while, you know, and, and 
by the way, we're talking about mass migrations into Europe because that's where you go from the Middle East while they're also dealing with Ukrainian refugees. You know, the possibility of, of violent extremism. You know, the last time Egypt, Egypt saw, saw a, a steep spike in bread prices, I believe, was in the run-up to the Arab Spring. And this could be steeper than that because that was just when Ukraine briefly halted exports. So those are some of the things that I'm looking at as, as somebody who's done a lot of research on Middle East security as well. Just, you know, even even leaving aside the humanitarian crisis, which we can't, because what we're talking what you're talking about here is just absolutely staggering in terms of the humanitarian toll outside of Russia and Ukraine. But the security implications are also, frankly, just terrifying. I I will just tell you and tell the listeners, I've been studying the Middle East on and off since about 2002. And this represents probably one of the scariest potential security realities in the region that I've seen. Because you, you add on global starvation, uh, you know, high bread prices in areas where they're already struggling and they're already heavily subsidized. I mean, we could be looking at something an upheaval that looks like what happened that makes what happened in the Arab Spring look like a picnic by comparison. So I'm just looking at it through that lens and it's, it's a pretty scary uh, prospect. I would agree. It is. And so this brings me to the question of what can we do about it? Is there anything the United States government or we as Americans or anybody can do to prevent some of these worst case scenario outcomes? Mm. I mean, I'm looking at right now, already we're looking at, at, at the best case scenario if the war stopped tomorrow, dramatically decreased harvest probably from Ukraine and possibly also from Russia. But mm. I don't think the conflict is going to stop tomorrow. Is there anything that we can do in terms of the U.S. government, the U.S. population, you know, U.S. ag, any, any, anything from that perspective? Uh, yes, there's always the U.S. is always the one that uh, is the most generous country in the world, uh, particularly from a global food security perspective. Back in 2008, when I was actually at the Peace Corps, uh, the world experienced an extreme food crisis as well. And there were a lot of lessons learned from that. Um, the Global Food Security Act passed in 2016 on a bipartisan basis, really to look at how to reduce levels of global poverty and hunger, food security, uh, particularly looking at the effects of women and children and how they need to, that needs to be something that's addressed throughout global food security, food security crisis. And really, how do you build resilience among vulnerable populations in general? Uh, so when you, when you look at an emergency, uh, it's something that does have an immediate effect, but you also think about what is the long-term prospect here and how can we start to build more resilient communities in the face of that? So the goal is really to ensure food security in countries that, and providing the resources to them. Um, you know, that's what organizations like mine, Food for the Hungry, uh, who receive government funding, try to do, really working with local farmers to find better ways to irrigate their land, diversify crops, increase yields with better seeds, and, and grow food for markets and commerce, not simply for subsistence. Uh, the U.S. has a lot of um, things in place that they can do to monitor what's happening around the world from a food security perspective. The Famine Early Warning System, or FuseNet, which was created by USAID, can help to pinpoint where the acute needs are going to be, and that helps with really pre-positioning commodities region regionally to ensure that assistance can get to where it's needed the fastest. USAID has five warehouse sites around the, the world where food is pre-positioned, and you can move it at a moment's notice. Procuring food locally and regionally is the most efficient, and it's also the fastest, and it also helps to be able to build up those economies from a sustainability perspective. The U.S. itself is, provides two and a half to three million metric tons of food aid every year uh, from the domestic U.S. that goes uh, overseas. But, you know, a lot of times that food can take three to six months to get where it needs to go. And there are challenges to 
to make that food that make that food cost prohibitive. So that's one of the things that, that Congress can, you know, take a look at when you talk about shipping needs and um, and cargo preference and things for for shipping food aid. But uh, we also want to make sure that we're not flooding markets where food could be produced. Um, Ukraine is actually a good example of that being the breadbasket, or when the conflict does end in Ukraine, uh, you they're probably going to need some food assistance as well. But we want to make sure that you're not flooding the market there and you're allowing farmers to be able to go back to their fields and to be to be Again, producing wheat at that time. So how can we help them in the interim, but also help them to be able to get back on their feet uh, at a moment's notice? And that's really the key to resilience and sustainability. Uh, so there's things that, that can be done, and but I think the, the easiest thing is to try to make sure that we get the conflict ended as quickly as possible. And I know that's something yeah. that uh, you know, has been heartening to see the, the way that the world has come together in standing up and, and saying that this can't happen. So obviously, best case scenario is to end the conflict, but then you need a combination of short-term infusion of, of aid, possibly, you know, I don't know, do you think we need to increase that, that amount that we, that we normally send out, um, start preparing for that now? But then on the other hand, you want to balance that with increasing local production, which is more sustainable and resilient in the long term. Yes, and part of the uh, FY22 appropriations bill that was passed last week did include a $16 billion emergency allocation for Ukraine. Uh, that's looking not just from a military perspective, but also thinking about that from a humanitarian assistance uh, perspective, mm -hmm. too. So I know that uh, USAID and other uh, government agencies are already there on the ground, uh, both in Ukraine and then also in the surrounding countries, particularly looking at the refugee crisis to try to make sure that, that we're doing all we can from a humanitarian perspective. Do you think we need some sort of global, just given the scope of what we're talking about, millions of people potentially starving, do we need some sort of global food security assistance supplemental funding? And, and if so, like how would how would you in an ideal world structure that and what would it look like? Mm. Well, it's something that I think that we'll have to look at once we see some of the repercussions that are happening uh, in Ukraine. Certainly, the uh, the FY23 budget process will actually begin in the next couple of weeks. Um, there was a supplemental uh, emergency food security package that was done in 2008, in particular, to address some of the rising uh, famine issues that were happening in the Horn of Africa. So there is mm -hmm. precedence and very recent precedence to be able to do that. I think we're going to have to wait and see a little bit of how uh, this is going to play out uh, in the coming months before we start talking about what the size of a supplemental uh, is going to be uh, to ameliorate what uh, what's in the short term. Uh, I think what we're going to have to look at more importantly, though, is really the long term, because the, the harvests that are happening or should be happening now are what's going to affect us uh, in the coming year or two. Uh, so this is going to be an issue that's going to stay with us for a while. Uh, so I think as they're looking at uh, emergency supplemental funding potentially in the short run, uh, but also thinking about next year's budget and how can we go ahead and shore that up uh, to ensure that we're looking at this crisis from a, a one-year perspective and a two-year perspective as well. So if we are thinking more about the long term and building sort of local capacity, because ultimately I think that's that's the solution. You know, there can be a quick infusion from from U.S. growers potentially to, to make up a shortfall. But long run, especially in a lot of these countries where you have huge percentages of the population working in agriculture, there needs to be increasing sort of local capacity. Do you think there's a role for uh, faith-based groups and faith networks, you know, local churches or even, you know, faith-based NGOs and so forth that can can play 
and can sort of step in and, and help build that capacity? <laughs> well, I happen to be biased on that area, so I would definitely say yes. Well, I wouldn't have asked, I wouldn't have asked you the question if I didn't think you were going to say yes. <laughs> so I think faith-based organizations uh, like Food for the Hungry, for instance, are very well placed to be able to do that. We have relationships with local communities, with local churches, so that trust is already there. And that's something that's so important uh, in developing countries to make sure that you have that trust so that we're not just going in there and telling people how how they should how they should grow their food actually we go in and we sit down and we hear what the needs are of a community and work with them to be able to create um, the the solutions to their greatest challenges uh, so I think faith-based organizations do have that very special relationship on the ground and that trust uh, and so we're able to get in there faster able to make sure that that we can uh, build the camaraderie with the communities. And in many cases, we've been there for many, many years. Yeah. You know, food, food for the Hungry has a very rich history of, of child sponsorship in so many of the communities where we are. And so being able to, to leverage the, uh, the expertise and the, uh, the relationships that we have there are something that's, that's really critical to making sure that we're building sustainable solutions uh, like food security. Last question. If folks want to find out more about these sort of global uh, food security implications and, and what this could mean, you know, in, in light of the conflict between Russia and, and Ukraine and, and, you know, the, the war on Ukraine, um, wh where are some good sources to find out more information? It's not exactly something we're seeing a lot of headlines about right now, um, but where can people go to find out more? Yeah, the World Food Program has put out some, some really great resources and in particular talking about you know, many of the statistics that uh, that I've mentioned too, and looking at what the long-term implications are there. So the the World Food Program, definitely somewhere to take a look at. Uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, their website, and then there are many organizations like Food for the Hungry, FH.org, uh, that are doing programming and and working with a lot of our affiliates to be able to provide uh, resources in the Ukraine crisis too. So uh, so those are three good resources to be able to take a look at. Yeah. And of course, you know, here at Regent, we have, uh, we're co-located with Operation Blessing. Mm, They're doing yes. heroic work in, in Ukraine. I'm sure as this, the dimensions of this, this global situation become more apparent, uh, we'll, we'll be hearing from them as well. But now that you've, uh, you've plugged the, the website for Food for the Hungry, uh, your, your bosses should be happy as well. So Rich, Richard Parker, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your insights on this important and I would say still kind of under discussed issue with the dramatic scope of this that we're potentially looking at and the implications for different aspects of the world. I think this is really something we need to be paying a lot more attention to. So thanks for, for kind of informing us on uh, some of the details. Thank you, AJ. It's been a pleasure. Great. And that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and find us at all the social media sites I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. And for Blind Politics, as part of our ongoing Eye on Ukraine series, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.